If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212. This is our number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this October 15th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. We begin our number number one with a couple of quick disclaimers. I'm describing this as the October 15th version of the podcast, although we are taping this on October 14th. Thanks to a technical issue with the studio, we normally do this on Sundays, but today we're doing this on Saturday. The second disclaimer is that uh, because of a perfect storm of having a uh, a very temperamental uh, five-year-old daughter who is now prone to Halloween-related uh, nightmares, and because I uh, have had to get up early uh, several times this week for various East Coast uh, uh, whether conference calls and interviews and what have you, I got basically no sleep this week at all. <laughs> and I don't function particularly well on a lack of sleep. Uh, look, I, I don't do nearly as poorly as my wife does because she, she's in charge of the infant, and, and I'm in charge of the five-year-old at night, and normally that's a, a great deal. But this week it was not. So I'm going to do my best under more more difficult circumstances than I would like. My vocabulary might be shrunken by about 50% uh, based upon the lack of sleep, but we'll see how we can make out here. Uh, another obviously interesting week of news, as is always the case in this crazy, crazy world. Uh, we've forgotten about Las Vegas now. Las Vegas is completely old news. Uh, my theory on Las Vegas has, in my opinion, been already validated. I wouldn't say vindicated yet because we, you know, it's still possible we might get new information, but uh, it is, it's very clear to me that everything we've learned about Las Vegas is consistent with my theory that this was a sick suicide party. The media has totally dropped it. I mean, the media moved on from Las Vegas in record time for a massacre of, of that level that we've never really experienced before, uh, but that's the way we are now. I mean, it's just everything is short attention span, move on, and especially since the, the killer is dead, there's no next chapter to the story, except for the conspiracy theories, which are lingering out there. They're gaining strength. I mean, Ann Coulter even is on the conspiracy bandwagon on this. I continue to be convinced that Trump will at least have to tweet something conspiratorial about Vegas 
in order to placate his base because there seems to be a remarkable correlation between the nut jobs who believe that there was a massive conspiracy of some sort that we're not being told the truth about Las Vegas and Trump supporters. I'm sure that's not coincidental. <laughs> you know, there's no question that there's a, a, a very uh, good reason why those two groups are very, very similar. All I know is what's on the Internet. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what it's about. It's the conspiratorial mindset, which Trump either uh, shares or is remarkably good at manipulating. I think he has to share it because no one could be as good an actor in this realm as Donald Trump has been. Uh, so well, I, I'm still curious to find out, you know, everything we can about what really transpired there in Vegas. But I'm sticking to my original theory, which I had the morning after. And I think uh, so far no one's come up with a better one to explain Las Vegas. We moved on from Vegas. And instead, the media decided this week was going to be Harvey Weinstein week. Now, when I did last week's podcast, think about how uh, quickly the world changes. So last Saturday night, Harvey Weinstein, while in big trouble, was still employed. He was still married. He was still a uh, political powerhouse within Hollywood. He was still a political powerhouse within the Democratic Party. That was a week ago. By the way, that same night, Joe Girardi, the manager from the New York Yankees, it was pretty much assumed he was going to get fired because he had managed so horribly and the Yankees down two games to none in their division championship series. So, so a week ago, as, as of this taping, Harvey Weinstein was still a major power player. Joe Girardi was on his way out. <laughs> and now Weinstein's fired. His wife's leaving him. He couldn't get a YouTube video made at this point. Forget about a movie. His career is over. He might be headed to jail. And Joe Girardi and the Yankees are in the division, the the the, the uh, American League Championship Series. Now they lost last night, but they're you know it was on the road and it's a seven game series, so they may still be out of the World Series. And if Girardi wants to come back, although there's indications he might not want to, my my guess is that he probably will. So it's an incredible world that we're living in. How quickly things can change in just a couple of days' time. But on a more serious note, with regard to the Harvey Weinstein story. I wrote a column uh, for Mediate. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to see it up at uh, freespeechbroadcasting.com by the time uh, that you uh, are listening to this. If not, just Google it, and my, my name, and Google News. It'll come up. And it's about how there are no heroes, literally no heroes, in this Harvey Weinstein situation. Now, you might be able to argue that uh, there's one or two reporters the guy who uh, had the story nailed for NBC, and NBC just said, no, we're not interested, and he went instead to the New Yorker. Okay, maybe he could qualify, uh, although, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I think I need more information to be able to make that determination that he's really a hero as of yet. But the major players in this, there are no heroes. The New York Times, which broke the story, is no hero. Because we also learned this week that in 2004, they had the story of Weinstein's, whatever you want to call it, abusive women, and they did nothing with it. And why did they do nothing? Well, Weinstein was a very powerful player in Hollywood. His company was a major uh, um, source of income for the New York Times. They bought a lot of advertising for the New York Times. 
And that doesn't prove why they spiked the story, but it certainly is a very interesting and, and important conflict of interest. And that's a long time. That's 13 years ago. Think about all the women who have been apparently abused in that time frame that could have been theoretically stopped, but he was too powerful then, and it wasn't in the New York Times self-interest then. Now, it was. And the New York Times was cowardly. But they're not the only ones that were cowardly here. NBC clearly was cowardly. The media, in general, are always a bunch of freaking cowards. I mean, I talk about this all the time. The media, in general, has gone from watchdog to lapdog for major celebrities or power players because everyone's terrified. Everyone's terrified of losing their jobs because jobs are very difficult to come by. Everyone's terrified of being sued. The Gawker lawsuit, I I saw a lot of media members referencing this, and I think there's some validity to it. The Gawker lawsuit really scared the living crap out of every media outlet when it comes to reporting on controversial allegations like this. Because one lawsuit now can put you out of business, depending on the nature of your outlet. If, if the case goes in the wrong direction, you get a bad jury, doesn't understand a bad judge. And getting sued has always been a great fear of media outlets, but now it's even greater than ever in light of what happened with Gawker. So the, the media, the big media especially, is, is remarkably cowardly in every way. Big media players wake up every day with one thought. How can I keep this scam going without working too hard for one more day? That's what they're, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's literally what they're thinking about. They, they, they take no risks at all they're, because there's no risk-reward ratio for them. They're already in a super cushy job. Most of them getting paid a lot of money if they're in the, you know, in the big media. So they're famous. They're getting paid a lot of money. It's an easy gig. Why would you do anything to jeopardize that? You wouldn't, which is why you get the same old crap, all, you know, the, the fluff, the cotton candy, the easy stuff, the stuff that's not going to upset anybody. It pervades, it comes out of the pores of every major television outlet. Safety. Safety first, safety second. <laughs> no risks be taken. And that's, by the way, it pervades other elements of media, too. But it's most dramatic in television because television is where the celebrity is and television is where most of the money is. And that's inherently incongruous. Boy, I just made up a word. See, that's the lack of sleep. It's completely inconsistent. There's a direct conflict of interest between people who are rich and famous and being in jobs where they're supposedly supposed to tell the truth. (laughs) That's a direct conflict. You want the truth, go to somebody like me who has nothing to lose (laughs) because I'll tell you the truth because I don't care about being criticized and I got nothing to lose. So that's, in this day and age, frankly, that's one of the reasons why podcasts are so popular because the people that are doing podcasts, most of them got nothing to lose. That doesn't mean you're always going to get the truth, but at least you got a chance in a podcast. And so we've seen 
ridiculous cowardice, but not all that unexpected if you understand the business when it comes to the Harvey Weinstein story. But it doesn't stop there. Let me give you another example uh, of someone who's been hailed as uh, somewhat of a hero, but I think is actually uh, more on the cowardly uh, front on this story. There's the woman who went on Megyn Kelly's show on Monday, and really her allegation was the final nail in Harvey Weinstein's coffin. She's the woman who came up with the story. I didn't say, I'm, I'm not suggesting she's lying when I say came up with, but she's the one that says that about 10 years ago, she was in New York City and Harvey Weinstein was, you know, showing her a friend's restaurant and uh, cornered her and uh, basically ended up masturbating into a plant, much to her shock, and then called her the next day and asked her, Asked her, wait, what a what a romancer. He asks her the next day whether he, she wants to go on a trip with him or something crazy. Well, um, this is a woman who, for the last uh, at least a couple of years, has been a reporter at Fox here in Los Angeles. Someone who, who ironically enough, I've mentioned to my wife, wow, that woman's really good. She she's really smart and she's attractive. What the heck is she doing only on the local? Affiliate, why is she not doing Fox News Channel nationally? And so she's not dumb. She, you know, she's a rare combination of beauty and brains for television. And I believe her story. But here's the thing. It's not like she hasn't been in a position to investigate Weinstein for a relevant local story. It's Los Angeles. She's at the Fox affiliate in Los Angeles. She knows and has said publicly, oh, I knew this had to be happened to me this way. It had to be happening to lots of, lots of other women, which apparently was true based upon everything else we heard this week once the floodgates open. But if you know that, how do you not have some sort of obligation to start at least investigating it or at the very least get somebody else within your news organization. Hey, um, I know a story here. Major player here in Los Angeles in Hollywood is a serial sexual harasser and that there's a cover-up going on here, a cultural cover-up and maybe a specific cover-up at his company. Yet not there's zero indication she did anything on that front. Zero. So don't, don't tell me you're courageous now that it's safe to come out and tell your story. I get why people shut up, you know, especially when it's not bombshell and you think no one's going to believe you and you don't know for sure that there's others and, you know, you know why, why create a problem for yourself? But that goes to that whole mentality of people in the media. Just don't do anything that can risk my gig. Don't do anything that, where I can get blowback because gigs are so tough to find in this day and age and I might lose my celebrity and my sense of self-worth. And so I'm just going to keep quiet. Okay, fine. But you've made that choice. Don't tell me you're a hero now. And that goes for way beyond this particular reporter. I'm going to say something I'm sure will piss off some people and, and, and certainly would be highly politically incorrect and you'll never hear in the major media. But I got a major problem with the eight women who allegedly, and apparently, according to the New York Times, made settlements with Harvey Weinstein where they were paid money and signed away 
their First Amendment rights by, by signing non-disclosure agreements, which, by the way, are, are very difficult to enforce anyway, especially once the, the uh, worm turns and the media's on your side. I mean, I, I doubt very seriously that at this point anyone's going to, you know, Harvey Weinstein's going to be able to enforce those non-disclosure agreements. But here's the deal. Here's what happened there. Let's be very clear. These women were paid money. In the case of Rose McGowan, who's been going off on Twitter all week to you know much publicity, Twitter actually suspended her for half a day and then basically pseudo-apologized for her because there was so much backlash. But she's the actress uh, who's, you know, she's now claiming that, that Harvey raped her. Well, she accepted apparently $100,000. Apparently she was one of the eight. Okay, so what happens there? By the way, if you're taking $100,000 from Harvey Weinstein, my guess is your allegation either wasn't quote-unquote rape or you your story had some problems because if that was real, you'd be getting more than $100,000, especially with signing a non-disclosure agreement. But when you sign that, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem taking the money, so per se, because, you know, that's the only way you might get justice. But when you, you're signing the non-disclosure agreement, that comes with a price tag. You are getting paid specifically for that. So in exchange for money, you are preventing yourself from being able to warn the public about this person you apparently believe and have evidence to believe is a monster. Okay, nothing illegal about that. But no one forced you to do that. I, I heard that dozens of times. They were forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. Or that, at least that's the implication. No, 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 no. No. Your, your lawyer may have advised you to do that because your lawyer was going to make money on this too. <laughs> that's the way this works. So, but you got paid. You got paid so then don't try to tell me you're a hero. You're actually a massive part of the problem. A massive part of the problem. Because if those eight women had decided, and I realize it's not easy, but sometimes life isn't easy. If they had decided to speak out, then this would have been stopped a lot sooner. A lot sooner. So I don't see any heroes there either. I also... Keeping along this theme, and our guest in the second hour, Sherry Jacobus, who's a political commentary USA Today columnist, and she makes a very interesting comparison to cable news television and Hollywood, which you absolutely have to listen to in hour number two, because I think in, in light of Harvey Weinstein and Roger Ailes, there are a lot of similarities, and it goes way beyond just sexual harassment. But one of the things that we talk about and, and I think is important to discuss here, is this notion that there is a deal being made even when you don't sign a contract, even when there's not an official non-disclosure agreement. And this is highly controversial, way too politically incorrect to talk about in major media. People would go, you know, clutch their pearls and go, oh, no, you can't be saying this. But here's the truth. Here's the reality. How many of these women who were sexually harassed in various forms by Harvey Weinstein were actually 
while they were disgusted by it, were actually probably in some ways happy it happened because it gave them a bargaining chip that they benefited from it. Or at the very least, they avoided some sort of negative reaction by keeping quiet about it. Again, these are life often provides you with difficult set of circumstances, difficult decisions. It's what separates, you know, the good from the bad, the weak from the strong, the wheat from the shaft, whatever, whatever cliche you want to use. But the reality here is that there was a deal being made here, even when there wasn't a contract for a lot of these women. And it sounds like I'm victim blaming. I am not. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is clearly a, a, a monster. His brother blasted him today. I mean, just just eviscerated him today. Now, partially, he has an incentive to do that because he's trying to save the Weinstein company. But it certainly seemed credible and sincere. But So I'm not victim blaming. I'm explaining what really happened here. And what really happened here is that when you have a very powerful guy like that and you put up with it, now you have a bargaining chip. Sometimes it probably worked for them. Sometimes it might not have. But that's part of why they kept silent, too, because they were making an informal deal with Weinstein as opposed to the ones where direct payment was made. Then there's the issue of the rapes. Because, see, this is, this is an incredibly important line here in this story. Because are we dealing with a, a sicko who abused women, abused his power, used his power to, to get women to put up with all sorts of despicable behavior? Or is it something far worse than even that? Now, I think we've pretty much established that the first scenario is true. And that's bad enough. I mean, that is bad enough to cost somebody their career, their reputation. I don't know if it's illegal. It's it's borderline, depending on the set of circumstances. But it's horrible and should be condemned. But there's also these three or four, you hear different numbers, three or four allegations of rape against Harvey Weinstein. Now, if it's rape, then now we're talking totally different set of circumstances. The guy belongs in jail. And this is in another level of horrendousness with regard to the nature of this scandal. I have to tell you, while I do not have nearly enough information, and I'm incredibly open-minded and willing to listen to whatever evidence ends up coming up, from the evidence we currently have, I have a hard time believing that Harvey Weinstein, quote-unquote, in the classic, although now often bastardized definition of rape, rape these women. And the reason why I'm saying that, and again, I don't like this guy at all. Well, why? I mean, I, but I'm just, I'm just somebody that's stupid enough to try to figure out what the truth is. So I'm not defending him. But when you listen to that police uh, sting operation tape of him with the actress, who he basically is admitting he's groped, and when you listen to these other stories about you know, like the one I mentioned where he masturbates into the plant and Angie Everhart where he's masturbating into the floor uh, you know, after waking her up in, in, a, uh, in a cabin on a boat. Uh, he, it seems like he gets his jollies, literally, from the 
the idea of it, the power of it, and yet he's actually kind of wimpy about it. I mean, the, the guy I heard on the on the audio sounds like a complete wuss. And there are other stories that are consistent with that, where when women stood up to him, he backed down immediately and rather profoundly. I mean, it's humiliating. How, how, how much more humiliating can you get than to masturbate into a plant, apparently rapidly, in, in front of a woman you barely know? I, to me, that's not the mentality of a guy who takes a, a, a woman and you know, physically, criminally rapes her in, in the traditional sense of the word. Now, this is one of my pet peeves because... See, when we live in these politically correct times, one of the ways that the forces of political correctness win is that they change the definition of words. And one of the words that they have very successfully changed the definition of, and I understand it probably started off with good intentions, but one of those words is the word rape. I often say that it's the R words where where political correctness really reigns supreme. Rape, race, and Republicans. There's probably a couple other R words, but those are words that get bastardized. Rape is such an explosive word. And people have a vision of what that means. And since it's so horrible, it's understandable. But now there are forces that have taken advantage of what that the power of that word and now i don't know what the hell the word means anymore what what does that word mean see because what i'm envisioning again i'm completely open to changing my mind about this and we get more information but the rose mcgowan story does certainly leads me in this direction based upon the nature of her settlement agreement and how she responded to all this and she's apparently one of the four what I feel like's happening here with those rape allegations, let's do the math on this. We got a powerful, super ugly guy, right, who is hitting on everything that walks. I think along the lines, you had a few women who really didn't want to do this, but he coerces them into having sex with them. And then afterwards, they're disgusted by it. And now they realize, oh my gosh, I got forced into sex. When in reality, effectively, it's the same way that a whore would regret having sex with. A whore doesn't want to have sex with her John. A whore could claim under these definitions to have been raped every single time. I had sex with someone I didn't want to have sex with. But I did. Why? Well, because they were paying me. Well, why do you have, why'd you have sex with Harvey Weinstein? Well, because, you know, I wanted that movie part. What's the difference? What's the difference? Other than one payment is direct and the other payment is is indirect. Again, I don't know for sure that's what happened, but that's what it feels like. When you have a, r- a fairly small number of, not that that's insignificant, but three, three or four rapes, they're real, that's a big deal. But over the, this time span, and when you have this many women <laughs> that are coming forward, if this was really... In, in rape in the traditional sense of the word. And this is, you know, that's what got uh, that senatorial candidate from Missouri, Todd Aiken, in so much trouble. Because no, you can't even talk about this publicly unless you're someone like me who doesn't give a damn. 
because people easily misinterpret it. Like you're somehow defending rape. No, I'm not. I'm trying to define it. And rape is not, you know what, I wish I hadn't had sex with that guy. (laughs) That's not rape. That might be sexual harassment, maybe, if you're using your power to get someone in bed. But heck, if you're not allowed to use your power over women to get them in bed, then how the hell are you going to do it? (laughs) Or why even pursue power? What's the point of pursuing power if you can't use it to get women in the bed that wouldn't ordinarily sleep with you? That's that's what makes the world go around. But I digress. And I knew, I realize this is going to sound like I'm, I'm defending Harvey Weinstein. I'm not. I think he's a disgusting piece of crap. But in every, every time we have a firestorm like this, I get very nervous when people start overreacting. Because then everyone wants to be part of the circus I mean, in some of these stories that came out later this week, it just became ridiculous. I mean, how far afield are we going here? I mean, there's there's one allegation accepted as fact against Harvey Weinstein. It is based on nothing but the the actress's mother doing a radio interview with no details. That becomes fact. What? What? But this happens all the time when there's a firestorm. We just throw rationality, due process, everything out the window. Oh, my God. Ah! Come on. And, and look, uh, you know, bringing Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and, uh, you know, all these other people in, into this process. I mean, why would they know? There's a difference between knowing Harvey Weinstein is a cad, which I'm sure they all knew, but... Trust me, there's a lot of those in the world and a lot of those in Hollywood. And the, the idea that they would know that that he was doing what he was doing, that, that's... It's just flat out ridiculous. I, 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 is it possible? Yeah. Is it worth questioning? Yeah. But uh, presuming it? No. And Ben Affleck, I mean, this this is where we got... We, we started to leave the, ra- you know, the gravitational pull of the rational earth this week. Ben Affleck was forced to apologize <laughs> for... Something that happened, I think, either like in the early 90s or a very long time ago, where he was on MTV (laughs) doing a live spot, and he, for half a second, groped the side of a woman's boob. And there was no indication at the time that the woman was that upset, although I realize it's television, so you might be acting about it. My guess is the woman's been bragging about this for, for years. And now all of a sudden, because Affleck is associated with Weinstein, and this becomes a news story, Affleck is, he actually apologized twice. He gave one apology, people didn't like that, he apologized again. Seriously? Seriously? Again, um, first of all, different era. Second of all, not really a big deal. I mean, not saying it's right. Not saying it's right at all. But in the... (laughs) In the pyramid of of crimes against women, when you're a movie star... By the way, I thought when you're a movie star and you're good-looking, this is allowed. Isn't that part of the rules? You know, the fav- My favorite thing ever done on the issue of uh, sexual harassment in the workplace was when Tom Brady hosted Saturday Night Live many years ago. And they did a, uh, a sketch, or it wasn't actually, it was a prepared piece, on, uh, like it was a sexual harassment training video... And Tom Brady was the guy who was showing you how to do it without sexually harassing. And the rules were basically, rule number one, don't be ugly. Rule number two, 
be handsome. And the reality was that Tom Brady was allowed to get away with all sorts of things that might be considered sexual harassment if the guy was ugly. But instead, it's Tom Brady. So the women are like, oh, that's the way the world works. That When you're Ben Affleck and you're on television and that's happening and on MTV and I think it was on the beach. I mean, seriously, this is what we're going to get wrapped up about? Seriously. Then there are other people that are being swept into this. Oliver Stone is now being accused. Now, Oliver Stone is a nut job, and I'm sure that Oliver Stone has you know, tried to use his, his fame and position to get laid many times. Uh, but the allegations are incredibly benign. I mean, one actress uh, whose name is escaping me right now, but she's uh, you know, pretty well known, is, is telling the story on Twitter of how he questioned why she brought her boyfriend to his movie premiere and and that somehow this was sexual harassment, that proof that, that he was harming her career because he wanted to get in bed with her, I guess, and because she brought her boyfriend to his movie premiere and he didn't like that, that he took vengeance on her. Okay, maybe, but that, that's a leap. But, you know, Oliver Stone's been brought in. Alfred Hitchcock, who's been dead forever, he's been brought in. And there was a movie made a few years ago about Hitchcock's treatment of of women. But one of the uh, actresses, the woman who starred in The Birds, uh, she got all sorts of publicity this week because she referenced the Hitchcock story and how he threatened to damage her career after sexually harassing her, and she had avoided that. But it's interesting to be, by the way, how many times when these stories are told, that nothing actually ever happens. It seems weird to me. I mean, it's almost always the stories that came out this week, there was, there's no actual sex, there's no rape, there's no, you know, it's a swing and a miss and get away. So, you know, but how, how did Alfred Hitchcock get involved with Harvey Weinstein? I was halfway expecting at some point this week that Liza Minnelli was going to claim that her mother, Julie Garland, in The Wizard of Oz, had Toto all over her, completely inappropriately. That Toto clearly was sexually harassed because he was all over my mom, Judy Garland, during The Wizard of Oz, and it was a Toto reign of terror. I mean, that, that's how crazy this has been getting. Anyway, obviously, from my perspective... There are a lot of comparisons to be made here to this firestorm, to what happened at Penn State, since my life has been dictated for over the last five years, largely by my investigation into that whole situation. And I mentioned this last week, but it's even more clear-cut this week. <laughs> How remarkably different the two stories are. I mean, to me, I, I could actually... I've not done this. I could easily... I could write... A, a, a very long article comparing the Weinstein firestorm to the Penn State Paterno Sandusky uh, firestorm and all the remarkable differences. How it is interesting that all of the, and it's, it's important to point out, the stories are remarkably similar in the, myth, the mythological narrative. You know, famous, powerful guy you know, famous within his realm, Jerry Sandusky, uses power over weaker beings. In the case of Weinstein, you know, potential starlets. In the case of Sandusky, kid, you know, boys in his charity. 
to over a very long period of time sexually abuse them in various ways and keep them quiet somehow for a very long time. Except the specifics couldn't be more different. Jerry Sandusky never had eight, he never had anybody, anybody settle an abuse claim with him to keep quiet. Nobody. Zero. By the way, Weinstein's wife left him in two days. <laughs> two days. <laughs> Jerry Sandusky's wife, Dottie, <laughs> is still with him six years after the arrest under with, with no incentive to stay with him at all. Not only does she stay with him, she stays living in State College where everybody knows her. She has to live with the hell of this every single day. She drives hours, not as long as she used to because they've changed where Jerry is in the prison, but for, for several years she was driving seven hours a week to visit him in prison. This doesn't happen unless you know your husband is innocent when there's zero incentive to stick by. Weinstein's wife didn't even, heck, you know, she didn't even wait to find out the details. She's gone already. Now, I realize it's slightly different because she's of a different age and has different options, but that's a rather dramatic disparity in the two situations. Also, the nature of the stories. All these women in Weinstein's story are willing to, or most of them, willing to be public, willing to have, give details. They told corroborating stories or they had corroborating witnesses. They know times and places and very, very specific details. They're all very similar. There's none of that. None of that in the Sandusky story. The cover-up angle. I mean, Weinstein had in his contract, in his contract, he had specifically the ability to settle abuse claims against himself as long as he paid them off with his own money and effectively paid the company a fine. I mean, it was... (laughs) I mean, it was in his contract, effectively, that, hey, we know you're an abuser. Just don't get caught. And if you do get caught, make sure you clean it up with your own money and pay us pay us a dividend. So the company, was, effectively, the company was making money from Weinstein's, or at least potentially they were, from Weinstein's settlement of abuse claims. There was nothing like that. Nothing like that in the Penn State situation. And, and, I mean, and everybody's saying now in Hollywood, we knew, we knew, we knew we were just afraid. Nobody in state college in this day has ever said, yeah, well, everyone knew. No one's ever said anyone knew. Nothing. These two situations should be incredibly similar, but they're not. And why is that? Because the Penn State one is a scam. It didn't happen. It was the perfect storm of... Bull crap. Uh, it, was, it was numerous perfect storms of bull crap. And I wrote a column about the most recent developments in that story for Law News this week. Once again, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com. Actually, the better place to go for that is framingpaterno.com. And check that out because it's it, there, there are some very interesting developments. They're somewhat complex, too complex to get into on the podcast. But if you go to framingpaterno.com, I did a, an interview with a local uh, state college radio station, which you can find there within that article uh, on Law News about the most recent developments, which I think you'll find uh, interesting. Here's the big uh, story with regard to that whole situation. There are a couple of 
major media outlets who are intensely interested in doing something major on this story. Now, one is the Washington Post. Uh, The Washington Post has been working on this for an exceedingly long time. The reporter has been putting in a lot of effort, which I'll give him credit for. In fact, tomorrow he's interviewing uh, Dottie Sandusky with with me, uh, kind of as the chaperone. Uh, and, And I'm amazed how much time and effort he's put into this. I don't think the reporter gets it or maybe he doesn't want to get it because it's too frightening, it's too risky, it's too threatening to the gig, <laughs> which you don't want to lose, especially in newspapers in this day and age. Uh, but he definitely has all the right information, and he's, he's definitely down you know, basically the right path in comparison to the rest of the media morons on this story. But I, I don't know, I have very little hope that it's going to be a game changer, but it, it'll definitely be uh, interesting assuming that it... Uh, it gets published probably in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but there's another situation that might even be bigger uh, that I, I'm not at liberty to talk about uh, right now. Uh, and there's also uh, there's two books. I knew there was one book, but now I've learned that there's two books in the works. One's going to come out in November by a guy uh, named Mark Pendergrast, who's a well-known author who's going to make the argument that's, I don't think, 100% accurate, uh, and I don't agree with, but it still gets the bottom line right, which is that this whole thing was a scam and that Sandusky was innocent. Uh, he believes that this thing is more about repressed memories, and I think it's more about money. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right. But uh, I think re- the repressed memories were used as an excuse for why, <laughs> why people were able to get the money. Uh, but anyway, uh, eventually maybe we'll have Mark on the podcast and, and he can explain his version. But there's also apparently another book that's scheduled for next year. Now, this has created a, a lot of optimism among people who are on, you know, on the very inside of this story, that something dramatic is going to happen. I'm not in that boat yet. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, because I think that there are the forces against justice here are incredibly strong. And when you have all of those forces literally invested in a mythology uh, it is very, very, very difficult to, first of all, change anybody's mind, and second of all, uh, to get any to to go into a situation where there are no landmines. See, like with this this other big media outlet that I have referred to, the people on on my side of the story, you know, think this is this is going to be a done deal, and I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute, hold on. <laughs> uh, you have to understand that this media outlet. When they if to approve this story the way that is currently envisioned, somebody above editor is going you know is going to have to approve this because this is way too risky. You know the editor may be fully on board right now, but it's amazing how people change when this goes from theory to practice. In theory, everyone's like, "Yeah, awesome, let's go, knock them dead." But then when it comes to pulling the trigger, it's remarkable. <laughs> everyone wimps out in this particular story because it's so toxic. So, that, you know, my my view on this has always been, I know I'm going to lose, but I have to keep fighting until there's no other option for reasons I've articulated previously. But one, it's the nature of the crusade. Two, it's partially because I'm the only person in the position to know exactly what really happened through nothing other than really than fate. And um, 
and three, because I have nothing else to lose at this point. So, so it's the perfect storm of you got to keep fighting because if this thing doesn't get corrected, then then heck, there's nothing to get corrected. Because I am positive, I am positive, as are other people very close to this, that it was all a big scam. And uh, but I'm very, I'm almost as positive that it's never going to get corrected, which is incredibly depressing. All right, um, moving on to other news of the week. Uh, last week when we did the uh, podcast, it was just before we learned that uh, Vice President Mike Pence had engaged in a blatant stunt at an Indianapolis Colts game, which cost taxpayers a lot of money, at least a quarter of a million dollars, so that he could further attention, uh, create attention on a, um, a story that was dying in wake of Las Vegas. Las Vegas had, had uh, effectively uh, taken the, the NFL national anthem protests off of the front burner. And it seemed very clear that uh, Donald Trump wanted it back on the front burner because he likes the story, not because it really helps him politically, but because it does damage to people he seeks revenge on, NFL owners who he got in a battle with when he was a USFL owner, owner of the New Jersey Generals, and who have blackballed him ever since. And it's very clear to me that that's what's going on here. Some media personalities are starting to catch on and it's amazing to me it's taken this long for people to figure out what trump's game really is but mike pence humiliated himself to take part in an obvious stunt to pretend that he was attending an indianapolis colts game to go from las vegas to indianapolis and then back to los angeles that night so you're in las vegas you're going to los angeles that night you make a pit stop in indianapolis with all that entails as vice president, so that you can knowingly walk out in response to the horror of seeing San Francisco 49ers take a knee uh, for the national anthem, is um, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's beneath the office of the vice president. It was an obvious stunt. It was obviously facilitated by Donald Trump. And I don't think it really worked other than focus the attention back on the story, which is what Trump wanted. So Pence allowed himself to be used as a tool, as a pawn, in Trump's game of media manipulation. And he seemingly did so happily. It's amazing. It's amazing how Trump is able to get some people to do things that you never thought would be possible, especially those in the media. And yet he can't get anything passed through Congress. How is this? How is it that Trump's magic works over certain people and has no power at all where it really matters? With me, it's just works. You know, it's magic. Yeah. Magic over certain people like Mike Pence, who I once thought was better than this, but not over the people that really matter in Congress because he still can't get anything passed that matters. But this was a stunt. This was reality TV. That's what this was. Are you not entertained? That's what it was. And, you know, this whole controversy is having an impact. It's hurting the NFL. There's no question about that. There was a chart that is stunning about a poll... Polling of Trump voters 
and their favorable impressions or disfavorable impressions of the National Football League. And it is remarkable. It might have been Republican voters, not Trump voters, but regardless, pretty much the same thing. It is remarkable how the approval and disapproval numbers have flipped ever since Trump made this a big issue. And it's important to point out, it's not like Trump made this a big issue when it started. This has been going on. It started last year. So if it was really all about the protests, then there would have been some movement in the numbers a lot sooner. No, this is all about loyalty to Trump. It's almost like if Trump says it, it's now not Republican to be against it, which is pretty freaking scary. I mean, that's, you know, that's like fascism there. That, that's, that's So just because your supposed leader, who's not even a real Republican, says, okay, now we must boycott the NFL, we must hate the NFL, now all of a sudden huge portions of Republican voters without even thinking about it, go, yep, damn right, damn straight. I'm against the NFL. I'm pro-flag. And again, it's important to point out, Trump has a huge conflict of interest here. I believe that most of this is being driven, it's being driven by two things. One, his revenge against the NFL. Two, a large portion of his base loves this. They love him fighting and they love the whole patriotism angle, fighting for the flag, the national anthem, that appeals to them. It's very simple. It's very base. And it makes them feel good about their lives. And frankly, there's also a racism angle. I don't think this would work for Trump's base if the people who were protesting were white. I really don't. I think spoiled black athletes are a good target for Trump with his cult-like base. I do believe that. I also think that there is a more potentially insidious motivation here that I haven't really heard anybody talk about. But, you know, we haven't discussed Russia very much recently. Let's pretend for a second. Let's pretend. And I, and I realize I, I'm not suggesting that this is what's happening because there's some conflicting information. I mean, there's, it's very difficult to come up with a theory on Russia that makes perfect sense based upon everything we think we know at the time, whether it's exculpatory or whether it's complete conviction. As you know, I've been moving more and more towards guilt here, but that it's never going to be proven to the extent where it removes Trump from office. But let's pretend for a second. Trump is guilty as hell on Russia, and he knows it, and he feels like Mueller is hot on his trail. If you were preparing, if you were battening down the hatches and you were preparing for the inevitable Mueller report that was going to be devastating, in order to survive that, what would you do? Well, there are three things you would do. The first is you would constantly try to discredit the news media by saying something like, fake news, fake news, it's all fake, 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 fake. Don't believe anything you hear. That's the first thing you would do. The second thing you would do, 
is you would wrap yourself in the flag. You would wrap yourself in patriotism. I am America. America is me. I'm only me. I am the only person fighting for the, for the flag. I am the patriot. So you would wrap yourself in the flag. And then you would also wrap yourself in religion. The last bastion of scoundrels. You would wrap yourself in religion because then the religious zealots would stand by you no matter what. Why? Because they would see attacks on you as an attack on God himself. That's what you would do. Well, what has Trump done? Trump has done all three of those things in spades. In fact, this weekend at the uh, Faith and Values Summit, he went overboard on the religious angle, as did his surrogates. One of his surrogates speaking at at that uh, summit actually said that uh, November 8, 2016 was an act of divine providence. That God, you know, the, the implication is God himself saved us from Hillary Clinton and bestowed upon Donald Trump the Electoral College victory. Boy, that God is a shifty one, isn't he? He's able to manipulate a few votes in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. He didn't care about the popular vote. <laughs> he just knew focus in on the Electoral College, kind of like he was a, a Russian hacker almost. Because <laughs> God might be a Russian hacker <laughs> in the world we're currently living in, or vice versa. So keep that in your mind. If, I'm not saying that's what's happening, but if it was, that's what Trump would be doing. Fake news, wrap yourself in the flag, wrap yourself in religion, because that's the only way your cult will survive if the inevitable is going to be rather damaging, which I'm moving towards on an almost a, a weekly basis couple other notes uh, of Trump news this week. Wow. Uh, the battle with Senator Bob Corker is really extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, if we hadn't been so desensitized by Trump already, the Bob Corker thing alone, the senator from Tennessee who has been very outspoken about Trump being a child and only a couple of people are saving us from chaos and, you know, all sorts of other things that, that went on this week. It's really remarkable that this hasn't gotten even more publicity if it was any other president a member of a respected member of his own party in the senate from the south a legitimate conservative he's no rhino this isn't susan collins or somebody like that this is this is a tennessee senator with a good rating from the american conservative union who is just eviscerating trump and trump of course is battling back you know you know it's gotten under trump's skin when he gives him a nickname he gave him, oh, it's very imaginative, little, as in D-D-L-E, little, little Bob Corker. Instead of little Marco Rubio, it's little with D's Bob Corker, which I guess is kind of a crack on the South, right? Is that, was that, I mean, that's, I'm assuming that's what he's going at, going for there, right? Little pronounced with a Southern accent might be a little with two D's. Very presidential, by the way, very, very presidential. Um, and then you got people like Steve Bannon, who says uh, that Corker should resign for having the gall to be 
so disrespectful of the commander-in-chief at a time of war. <laughs> this, coming, this coming from a guy who run, ran Breitbart and worked for a presidential candidate who spent years claiming that President Obama was born in Kenya with no proof. I mean, the hypocrisy is is staggering. It's comical. And this, these are the people who are now the leaders of the so-called Republican Party. Now, very close to Bob Corker is Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State. Rex Tillerson is someone who I've told you to keep an eye on, partially because my father, um, he doesn't know Rex Tillerson real well, but he's done some business with him, met with him a few times. And my father has always said, in fact, he said on this podcast, that uh, he always felt confident that when push came to shove that Tillerson would do the right thing and, if need be, he would resign. There's been a lot of speculation he's going to get fired because apparently he called the president a fucking moron. <laughs> now, the funniest part about the fucking moron comment is, one, that Tillerson didn't really deny it, and, two, that Trump is apparently obsessed by it because there's no... It, you know, it's certainly not an indication that you're a moron, that you do everything you possibly can to keep the news that your secretary of state called you a fucking moron as in play as Trump has done in the last week or so. Because that's what a fucking moron would do. You know, the smart guy would just let it go and say, okay, whatever. The fucking moron might do everything he possibly can to keep that in the news. And that's what Trump has done. Even going to the point of challenging Rex Tillerson. I can't believe, I cannot believe I'm saying this seriously. Our president challenged his secretary of state to an IQ test, claiming he knew for sure that he would win. Now, I have to admit, folks, I did not, even as, as pessimistic as I was about the Trump presidency, and, and the reality show that it has, has, would inevitably become. I, myself, did not anticipate the episode where the president challenges his secretary of state to an IQ test because he had been called a fucking moron to happen at least until season three or four. I, I cannot believe this is happening in season one. I mean, this show is clearly getting renewed. I mean, they, are, they, they really want renewal because they're throwing everything they possibly can to keep the ratings up. Are you not entertained? That really happened. The President of the United States challenged his Secretary of State to an IQ test because he had been called a fucking moron. Which is kind of one of those situations where Tillerson's going, See? <laughs> I told you so. Some other things that Trump did this week, which might be even dumber, as if it's possible. Now, look, I despise the mainstream news media more than anybody I know. I think my street cred on that could not be better. I've taken them on on numerous occasions. I did a whole movie about the 2008 presidential election called Media Malpractice. I've been in numerous battles on, on national television with some of the biggest media figures, I despise them. I think they're a bunch of morons, the vast majority of them. But what Trump did this week on two different occasions 
in threatening the licenses of broadcast outlets with whom he disagrees was both frightening and just... It's just flat-out ridiculous. It's hard to know with Trump when to take him seriously. You know, there's the whole bit about do you take him literally or do you take him figuratively? And Trump voters, they didn't take him literally. They took him figuratively. And that's, that's why Trump voters shouldn't be castigated. They shouldn't be criticized. They understood him better than us. Bullshit. With, with the FCC thing and licenses of news media outlets, it's, we're no longer talking literally or figuratively or seriously or whatever the hell it is. He's a joke. It's a joke. And even the FCC, thankfully, put out a statement effectively saying, yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. And oh, by the way, it's important to point out, when Trump makes these threats, he doesn't even seem to understand, forget about the First Amendment, he doesn't even understand the way licenses work. There's no license for a cable news channel. He referenced cable news channels in this. Some of his reporters, his, his, his supporters, including Bill Mitchell, the guy, the big Trump supporter who hung up on me during this podcast a few months ago, Bill Mitchell actually tweeted that newspapers should have their licenses revoked. There are no licenses for newspapers! How stupid are these people? It's, it's epic. It is epic how dumb these people are. We are being run by morons. It's idiocracy. The people in charge have no idea what they're talking about. None. Not to mention the hypocrisy of conservatives now, like Sean Hannity. So can you imagine? Sean Hannity is now in the position of... Supporting a guy blindly and proactively who's in favor of cracking down on media outlets. Gee, what precedent might that set when Trump is out of office and Sean Hannity has to deal with a President Elizabeth Warren or whoever the hell it might be? Are you kidding me? And thank goodness for Senator Brent Ben Sassy from, uh, is it Sassy or Sassy? I don't know, but whatever it is. Senator uh, from Nebraska, really the last uh, one of the last of the Mohicans, as far as a conservative is concerned, you know, he went after Sean Hannity on Twitter and vice versa. Say, you know, Sean Hannity claimed that that the senator had changed. (laughs) He's like, dude, I didn't change. You did, which is 100 percent accurate. I'm defending the Constitution. I'm defending the First Amendment, which, by the way, the president of the United States took an oath to defend and is no longer doing so. Why? Because he wants to rally up his base, throw red meat to his cult. Yeah, I'm going to take away their licenses if they don't start telling the truth about me. (laughs) That's the scariest thing I've ever heard him say. Of all the things he's ever said, and I can't stand the news media, that I can't think of something that, that would be more scary to me as a free speech guy, a guy who wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech, than if that ever got remotely implemented. It's just amazing to me the, the hypocrisy of the right-wing media. I remember this would have been back in like 2000 and I'm guessing six. In 2006, this is how much the, the, the news media 
the right-wing news media has changed in, uh, because of Trump and how hypocritical they are. In 2006, I interviewed Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma. And during that interview, he told a story, a story on the radio, secondhand, not even direct. Secondhand, he told a story of having overheard Senator Hillary Clinton and Barbara Boxer in the elevator talking about coming up with a legislative fix for talk radio. And I sent that audio clip to Andrew Breitbart, who was at that point running the Drudge Report, and that got put up as the headline on the Drudge Report. Headline, above the fold, big deal, legislative fix, being, you know, liberal conspiracy. When Trump himself, not overheard, publicly tweeted to the world twice that he's thinking about not a legislative fix, an executive fix of licenses, it didn't even make the Drudge Report, at least when I went there to visit. And I'm guessing that it never did, certainly not the headline. Never even got mentioned. That's the level of hypocrisy here on the issue of, well, frankly, everything, but in this case, free speech, but free speech that directly impacts their business. Drudge has been constantly paranoid about, you know, Obama going after him. Remember? I mean, I mean, there were numerous times where, where Matt Drudge would link to stories of, oh my gosh, they're going to shut down Drudge. Trump threatens to do it on the networks. Nothing. Crickets. It's embarrassing. It's absolutely embarrassing. It's all just a reality show. Now, there was one thing of substance that the, the president did do this week, which is worthy of mention. And this is classic Trump. And I'm referring to his executive order with regard to Obamacare and getting rid of some of the regulations and getting rid of some of the subsidies. And in the micro, and this is being cheered by some conservatives, including by Rand Paul from Kentucky. In the micro, I understand. Apparently, on paper, he is very much on solid ground constitutionally to to get rid of what Obama did there and philosophically it makes sense except here's the problem it's only a very small piece of a larger picture and what's the reality what's the reality of what's going to happen forget about whether or not it's right or wrong in the in the micro in the larger picture Donald Trump in order so that he can claim that he did everything to fulfill his promise of getting rid of Obamacare so it's all about him and by the way, it's not just all about him. It's all about him, what happens today. He doesn't even think about tomorrow. It's about today, which is one of the reasons why he understands the news media so well, because they have the same goals. Survive today. What's good for me today? Tomorrow doesn't matter. So, but I digress. So the point here is that in the longer run, now what we've done is, in order for Trump now to be able to claim he did everything to fulfill his promise of repealing Obamacare, which isn't even true, but okay, fine, in order... In exchange for him getting that benefit, here's what we've lost. You can now no longer credibly, especially in this media environment, you can no longer claim that Obamacare failed on its own. You can no longer claim that that's Democrats' fault. You have now just alleviated all of the blame, all of the burden the Democrats should have carried for the inevitable implosion of Obamacare because 
they're the only ones that voted for it. It didn't get one Republican vote. They owned this. It was Obama's name on it. It's his name on it. They, they own it, no matter how much the media could have tried to spin it. But now we've taken that burden off of them. Because now it's Trump care, which is associated with Republicans. And so now, as we hasten the inevitable implosion of Obamacare, guess what's going to happen? There are going to be people who will lose their insurance. There are going to be people who might even die because of this. Or at least that the media will be able to claim died because of this. And the media will be all over it. And guess who's going to get the blame? No longer will Democrats get the blame. Republicans will get the blame. Republicans. And guess what we have coming up next year? We've got a midterm election where every single Republican in the House and you know, a decent number in the Senate are going to be up for re-election with virtually no accomplishments and to a small but significant segment of the population, they will be blaming them for what happened with their health care. So an already difficult set of circumstances politically just got more difficult. So now we have a situation where the, the chances of Democrats taking over the House and the Senate in 2019 have increased. Just as Obamacare is disintegrating, imploding, which will create a crisis. And what will that mean? Gee, we've got a pseudo, not really Republican president, a Democratic House, maybe a Democratic Senate, a crisis in health care. How do we, how as a government do we fix crises? Do we ever go more conservative or do we go more liberal? Do we go less government intervention or more? Think about what happened in the crisis, uh, financial crisis in 2008. That was all about the government stepping in, even when some of the companies didn't want them to step in. Because that's the only way you can, you, you, there's not, you know, when you got a crisis, you got to do something. So inherently, inevitably, fundamentally, it's always going to be more liberal. So that will set the stage for Trump to say, you know what? It's broken. We need to fix it. How are we going to fix it? Trump's already on record. You probably don't know this. Most Trump fans don't know this. He's already on record in the campaign, in the primary, saying he favors single payer. There's a Breitbart headline from before, you know, Breitbart went full on Trump tired by John Nolte, a guy who used to be my friend, who's a complete total sellout. He once called me his hero, and now he's blocked me on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's hilarious what Trump does to people. Uh, it's an article on Twitter where Trump is coming out in favor of government-run single-payer health care. So he's already philosophically, to the point that he has a, a philosophy, he's philosophically wedded to it. The Democrats want that. A crisis is going to ensue requiring government action. So what's going to be the outcome? Pretty, seems pretty freaking simple to me, pretty obvious, that that's where we're headed here. And Republicans won't be able to do a goddamn thing about it. So if you're cheering about this right now, I doubt many people listening to this podcast are cheering about it because they get it. But the reality is we're going to pay a very dear price 
a very dear price for Trump's ego being massaged this week. So just keep that in mind, and it's consistent with what I've been predicting all along. Make sure you listen to hour number two of this week's podcast because we get into this issue with uh, Sherry Jacobus, who is a uh, political commentator, a former GOP political operative and spokesperson and a columnist for USA Today. She's the interview subject in hour number two. Also, by the way, next week we'll not be doing a podcast. It's my wife's birthday weekend, so um, please forgive me for that, which I'm sure means that this week will be a huge news week. Uh, but if it is, you know, I'll still be doing my columns for Mediaite, and you can check all that out uh, via my Twitter uh, feed or on Facebook or what have you. So there'll be other ways for me to uh, comment on things if, in fact, uh, you know, the inevitable happens and big news occurs. Uh, but until then, uh, you know, have a good couple of weeks. And uh, as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, please share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, or word of mouth. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and at night you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com, and my name is John Ziegler. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. (laughs) Performance bedding? (laughs) Yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.